Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Christian Coates Uruksen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston, Texas. His most recent book, published by Hearst, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. And our conversation today is going to focus on Qatar and its renewal of a robust foreign policy, one that has been boosted by the tailwinds of the Taliban victory in Afghanistan. Christian, delighted to have you back in the podcast. Great to be back with you. Now, let's go back a decade or so in the heyday of Hamad bin Jassim Maltani, HBJ, the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of Qatar, nicknamed the Peacemaker. And uh, he had Qatar punching well above its weight in foreign diplomacy. Can you just sketch in the picture for us of, of what HBJ was up to? Well, Hamad bin Jassim was the foreign minister of Qatar from 1992 until 2013. And from 2007 onwards, he was also the prime minister. He also was the head of the Qatar Investment Authority as well for the latter part of that time. And so he was really able to utilize his contacts, his extensive range of contacts across the region, draw that together with Qatar's ability to provide resources to conflict-affected areas as well. And um, Qatar in the 2000s served on the Security Council of the United Nations. It had leading roles at the G77, group of countries plus China. It gradually became much more involved in multilateral and international affairs and towards the late 2000s became involved in mediation and there was a breakthrough of sorts in 2008 when Qatar mediated and produced a political resolution to a a crisis in Lebanon over who should be the next president and then there were other mediations in Yemen in 2007-2008 which was less successful trying to mediate an end to the conflict between uh, the Yemeni government of that time Ali Abdullah Saleh, and the Houthi movement in northwestern Yemen. And then also in Darfur, with the Sudanese government, there was an attempt to mediate there as well. So by 2011, the Qataris had developed a reputation as a mediator. And then between 2011 and 2013, the last couple of years, uh, the Arab Spring happened and Qatari policy became a, a bit more assertive and perhaps interventionist, uh, picking sides, uh, at least in the opinions of their critics around the region, and um, becoming much more involved in Libya and in Syria as well. And of course, Egypt. And Egypt as well, yes. In 2012-13, supporting the Egyptian government that was elected um, under Mohamed Mursi in June 2012. And pride, as the saying goes, cometh before a fall. When Amir Tamim took over after his father abdicated in, in 2013, HBJ was out as both PM and foreign minister. But by that time, he had managed, as you suggest, to step on a few big regional toes, hadn't he? Particularly those of Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE. Well, Saudi Arabia, I think, has always seen itself as the hegemon in the Arabian Peninsula, the most powerful conventionally powerful state in the Gulf, uh, on the Arab side of the Gulf. Obviously, there's Iraq and Iran uh, kind of further afield as well. And one of the aspects of Qatari policy after 1995, when the Emir Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa took power, uh, the Emir Emir Hamad and HBJ were the twin architects from early 1990s when HBJ became foreign minister of really 
pushing Qatar to step outside of the Saudi shadow and develop a set of policies of its own. And uh, the Saudis never really accepted, I think, the fact that a smaller Gulf country could have a set of autonomous regional policies. Uh, UAE started doing the same thing in the 2000s as well. And so there was a degree of friction. The Saudis had uh, withdrawn their ambassador from Doha from 2002 until 2007, partly out of frustration with Al Jazeera's coverage of regional affairs. But by 2011, with the Arab Spring, the uh, fact that the Qataris were more relaxed about the pace and direction of political change as um, events unfolded across the region, uh, really raised the alarm bells in Riyadh and in Abu Dhabi, which were trying to preserve an authoritarian status quo, especially in terms of limiting the potential upheaval, um, given the uprising in Bahrain in 2011 too. So by 2013, uh, there was a degree of polarization where people in Riyadh and in Abu Dhabi became convinced and perceptions very much driving policy making by this stage that the Qataris were supporting Islamist groups across the region and uh, were determined to try and limit and contain the the spread of um, of political upheaval. And we saw that in Egypt in 2013 when uh, a week after uh, Emir Hamad uh, stepped down and Sheikh Tamim became Emir, when HPJ himself also stepped down as Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, a week later we had the, uh, the coup in Egypt when Mohamed Morsi was toppled, replaced by the military-led regime under General, later President Sisi, and the Saudis and Emiratis immediately stepped in with large amounts of financial aid and political support to really replace the the Qatari support for the Morsi presidency that had been in place between 2012 and 2013. So by 2013, there was a backlash. Hamid bin Jassim stepped down as foreign minister and prime minister as part of a clean break when... Uh, Sheikh Tamim came to power and uh, really part of the Gulf crisis that began in 2014 when the Saudis, UAE and Bahrain withdrew their ambassadors from Doha for nine months and then the subsequent blockade of Qatar from 2017 that all had its roots in the Saudi-Emirati determination I think in 2013-14 to really try to flex their muscles um, vis-a-vis Qatar and other parts of the region too. Yeah, and it's just worth uh, worth mentioning that uh, Qatar has an indigenous population of what less than three hundred thousand people, and uh, you know was punching really very much above its weight, and and it really gotten beyond what it was capable of handling because it had a huge portfolio, and a very small infrastructure to support that foreign policy portfolio. Well, one of the criticisms, I think, of HBJ's time as foreign minister when we had the mediations of the late 2000s was that there wasn't necessarily the capability in the ministries to undertake a lot of the legwork that was required. So I think one of the criticisms was that they would have the mediations take place in Doha and agreement would be produced and there wouldn't be as much follow-up as, as might be required. And that has changed in recent years, actually. And I think one of the charges leveled at Qatar at that time was that HPJ was doing a lot of it himself, using his vast range of, of contacts, but in, in a more personalised style of policy making. Whereas actually over the last few years, we've seen the creation of additional special envoy positions and a sort of deepening of um, kind of expertise within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to better support 
more recent Qatari initiatives to mediate in regional affairs. And and put to good use in, in combating the uh, impact of the blockade, which, uh, as you mentioned, began in 2017 and, and really didn't end until uh, January of this year. But one of HBJ's initiatives that remains very much in play and it's paying dividends today was the sheltering the Taliban leadership in five-star comfort in Doha in that contestation for influence in Washington with the Saudis and the Emiratis. How big a boost does the Taliban connection give Qatar? Well, the, the Taliban office opened in Doha in the early 2010s, partly because the U.S. really wanted a place where they could contact representatives of the Taliban having had their fingers burned in Afghanistan on a couple of occasions in 2010 when US and NATO officials thought they were negotiating with leaders who claimed they represented the Taliban. And then after taking money from those negotiators, they then disappeared. So it was very much at the US insistence that the the Qataris um, invited the Taliban to open a political office in Doha, which after a few false starts began to, to function as a way for US and Taliban officials to at least exchange messages and then lay the framework for a for a dialogue that began uh, several years later. So the fact that the Qataris were working with the US was important. The political office began to deliver results. In 2014, the uh, negotiations to release Bo Bergdahl, who was a US um, he was a U.S. military person who had been captured and held in Afghanistan by the Taliban. Those negotiations were important because the U.S. and officials realized that the political office could produce results. They could deliver on an agreement to some extent, and the Qataris were able to bring them together to uh, yield an objective that was satisfactory to all parties. And so that was a degree of confidence boosting that was important And then by 2018, when President Trump um, um, announced that he would create a a special envoy, Selma Khalilzad, with a mandate to negotiate with the Taliban, it was natural by that point that the political office in Doha would be the the conduit or the vehicle through which those negotiations would take place. And by that point, the Qataris had, I think, earned a reputation for being able to be that interlocutor that could bring the two parties together and establish that degree of trust, or at least a basic degree of trust, that um, if there was an agreement, there would be a, a sort of follow-through from that agreement as well. But what's been the political dividend, do you think, for the Qataris in Washington? Well, in terms of delivering an end to what has been described as one of those forever wars in 9-11, 20 years on, the political dividend has been that the Qataris have assisted and allowed President Biden to do what his three predecessors, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, couldn't do, withdraw the forces from Afghanistan, even though it was obviously handled in a, a chaotic and perhaps less than optimal way. And um, the Qataris have also played a key role in uh, the beginnings of the humanitarian uh, approach to post-US Afghanistan in terms of um, utilizing their contacts with the Taliban representatives who had been based in Doha, who are now back in government, or at least back in positions of political power in Kabul, to um, assist in the evacuation process, to continue to assist in the evacuation of civilians and journalists. And that's generated a lot of political goodwill, and also media goodwill too, where 
we've had stories in the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, all ascribing the importance of the Qatari officials in facilitating their withdrawal when it seemed as if the US couldn't or wouldn't do as much to help. And so it's generated a lot of political goodwill and really produced a dividend in that respect after years of painstaking groundwork to, to get to the point where the Qataris could be the main interlocutor between, I guess, the international community and, and the Taliban. And obviously the fact that both the US and the UK and others have now relocated their diplomatic missions from Afghanistan to, to Doha means that Qatar will continue to be the place for regional and international outreach to Afghanistan for, for some time to come. Let's uh, let's shift uh, to Gaza and the role Qatar is playing there. Remind us of what the Qatars are doing and do you see any downsides uh, for them? Well, again, in both in Afghanistan and in Gaza, we see the ways in which the Qatari leadership since 2013, since Sheikh Tamim came to power, has kind of institutionalized a lot of the work that had been previously sort of very personalized in policymaking under HBJ. We had the creation of a special envoy for counterterrorism with Mutlaq al-Qahtani, who did a lot of the, who's handled a lot of the work in Afghanistan. And in Gaza, we've had a creation of a special envoy for Gaza, uh, Mohammed al-Imadi, who also has been pivotal in kind of um, leading Qatari outreach towards Gaza. And just as with Afghanistan, the Qataris have coordinated at every level with the US. So in Gaza in recent years, all the work Qatar has done has also been coordinated with Israeli officials. So there's no repeat of uh, the suspicion that had been around in 2011-12 of what were the Qataris up to just because perhaps there wasn't that public diplomacy aspect to explain what they were doing and there wasn't that level of coordination with regional partners. So in Gaza, the Qataris have been um, providing financial support to the people of Gaza, again, channeled through the Israeli occupation authorities, but really financial support to stave off a complete humanitarian collapse, to allow salaries and wages to be paid, and also some basic infrastructure to be continued. And from an Israeli point of view, it really prevents the um, the collapse of Gaza, especially given the uh, various conflicts and obviously the last 18 months, the impact of the pandemic. And so the Qataris have developed, again, a a degree of goodwill among Israeli officials who actually keep... um, pressing the Qataris to continue the um, to continue their support. Um, just days after the Abraham Accord was announced in August 2020 with the UAE, uh, the leader, um, the head of Mossad, flew to Doha to personally request that Qatar continued its continued its program of assistance to to Gaza. So it's obviously um, something that is uh, is recognised and valued by again by regional and international partners. So. I'm not hearing any downside for them on, on the Gaza situation. Well, obviously, we had another conflict in May 2021 in Gaza. It clearly, again, had a lot of backlash to uh, the policies of the Israeli government. There was uh, a lot of backlash in the region. Even in the United States, there was greater political criticism of Israel than I think we've seen in the past. And that might be partly because elements of the Democratic and also the Republican parties are now becoming more um, sort of maybe more, kind of less mainstream in, in many ways. So if Gaza was once again the theatre of political violence or if uh, 
there's another conflict with Israel that becomes sort of less kind of becomes more violent. You know, that could obviously bring downsides. You know, if Qatar was seen to be kind of assisting or abetting the the occupation by just allowing it to continue, you know, sort of at a sort of a level which is manageable from an Israeli point of view, that could potentially bring a downside in the future. Just as with the Taliban back in power in Kabul, if it turns out that the Taliban are just as bad or even worse than they were in the 1990s, then that could also bring reputational damage too. So engaging is a risk, obviously, and uh, you know, those risks could uh, could pay off, or they or they might not pay off. Do you do you see Qatar recognizing Israel joining the Abraham Accords, or is that a card it might just want to hold on to? I don't see Qatar joining the Abraham Accords. I think the Abraham Accords were a product of the highly transactional style of policymaking that characterized the Trump presidency. I think Israel, well, I think the UAE and Bahrain joined for reasons that were not necessarily connected to an interest in resolving the Arab-Israeli or the Palestinian issue. I think the UAE joined because they wanted to make a statement in Washington, and Bahrain had joined for reasons, I think, quite similar. And I think the Qatari point of view is that they have a working relationship with Israel on issues they need to work on together, and that has produced results. And so why, why, why sort of go an extra step and join an accord which, from a regional perspective, doesn't seem to be focused on finding a fair, just, and sustainable solution to the Palestinian issue. Can the Palestinians trust Qatar? Because the Palestinians have been, well, let's face it, betrayed by by many of their Arab uh, friends. Well, I think the fact that the Qatari assistance is directed towards humanitarian and financial support for people who have been affected by, obviously, the ongoing occupation means that it's less... um, Political, in the sense that they're not—they don't seem to be supporting political actors per se. They're supporting the people of Gaza in this case. Obviously, the Palestinians are divided between Gaza, the West Bank, between Hamas and Fatah and other groups, and so by definition, everything is political. But the fact I think that the Qataris have been uh, channeling their support to "quote unquote" the people to alleviate uh, humanitarian uh, suffering. Um, means that it's not necessarily a question of trust. It just means that they're not um, they're not perhaps involved in the political elements as much as just trying to kind of mitigate some of the uh, some of the suffering. Now, Qatar had two good friends and allies during the blockade uh, that we've touched on: Iran and Turkey. What is the state of play with those two countries today, and and Qatar? Well, in both cases, we have the political relationship that has continued, diplomatic relationship in terms of Iran. The Qataris can play an important role in in, uh, sort of bridging some of the differences between Iran and its Arab Gulf neighbours. We've obviously seen Saudi Arabia and Iran engaging in a process of at least diplomatic outreach uh, mediated by the Iraqis in Baghdad which is, is a good sign. Uh, Qataris can assist, if necessary, in terms of, uh, together with Kuwait as well, and Oman, in terms of just trying to build up goodwill and sort of maybe pass messages between different sides if necessary. 
And with Turkey, the relationship, I think, is still strong. It's political, it's economic as well, it's commercial. Uh, obviously, the Turks provided a lot of support for Qatar during the blockade. And uh, the fact that Turkey and Saudi Arabia, and to some extent the UAE, are now also thawing ties is, is a good sign. And I think the Qataris, again, if necessary, can play roles in kind of helping to assist in that process of reconciliation, should that be a... Should that be something that they can help with? Now, Qatar has ramped up its lobbying in D.C. and its profile. It's doing, as as you said, Biden some big favors vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Taliban. But, but let's zone in on the JCPOA. Is there a significant role for the Qataris to play? Well, the JCPOA is, I think, an issue where the Biden administration has found it much more difficult than perhaps they might have expected when they came into office in January this year. And I think there's a lack of political trust on the Iranian level just because Trump pulled out. And obviously we're now just over three years away from another presidential election. And who's to say that without the political protection of a treaty, which for reasons of U.S. domestic politics is almost impossible to imagine a Senate granting uh, the JCPOA those, those, that sort of treaty status. It's, it's going to be very difficult for the U.S., I think, to convince the Iranians that they can engage in good faith. And I think that's a gap that is very difficult to bridge. The Qataris and others in the region could support the context, I guess, the contextual parameters of engagement by continuing to talk about the need for diplomacy to pass messages if needed between different parties. But I think ultimately the JCPOA will be uh, negotiated by the different part the, the parties involved and the regional actors can try and support the surrounding context but probably won't be uh, pivotal to the negotiations per se. And I think that's going to be an issue for the Iranians and the U.S. to try and figure out a way in which they can kind of regain each other's trust, and it's going to be quite difficult for them to do that, I think. Let's look then at the at the wars in in the MENA region, Yemen and Syria, and uh, a fragile peace in Libya. Are there roles there for Qatar to play again with this more robust uh, foreign policy that they've taken on, or, or are they going to be wary? Uh, well, I, I think if there is a move towards winding down those conflicts and if there's a move towards some sort of post-conflict reconstruction and recovery then there's a potential role or by hosting negotiations or by supporting political reconciliation efforts then these are all roles where Qatar could play I think they would be uh, advised and I think they probably would try and ensure that any role they played was part of a kind of multinational role, kind of a multilateral initiative, partly because obviously in both um, Libya and in Syria, there's a legacy of the sort of events of 2011, 2012. And there were obviously actors in both countries that would, at least in Libya's case, uh, have uh, links to other regional protagonists, such as the UAE, which, uh, which would potentially be sort of actors that would not engage in, in good faith in every circumstance. And so I think if there is, a, if there is an initiative, it would probably be 
a, a lesson learned, which is that it's better to coordinate with regional international partners and to be part of a multilateral initiative rather than trying to do it alone, which was very much, I think, a feature of 2011-2012. Yeah, well, I, I'm thinking too about uh, the UAE and the animosity there with uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, really, uh, you know, his anxieties over political Islam and, and you know, the, the main protagonist in in the uh, in the blockade. Do you think that he's easing up on his feelings towards the Qataris and seeing them as uh, less of a of a nest of supporters of political Islamists? Well, I think the UAE, or at least Abu Dhabi, has adopted more of a maybe a pragmatic approach to the region over the last year, partly, I think, out of recognition that under the Biden administration, there's far less, well, there's no room for adventurism than they might have thought they had under the Trump administration. I think also the uh, fact that the US under Trump didn't come to Saudi and Emirati support in 2019 when they were targeted by Iranian-linked missile and drone attacks was a reality check, sort of a wake-up call. When they realized they didn't necessarily have unconditional U.S. backing for everything they were doing in the region, they suddenly became much more interested in de-escalations with Iran because I think they really had to reassess how they approached the whole regional regional issue with with Iran, much more of a realistic and pragmatic approach. So I think part of that has obviously been a reconciliation with Qatar, part of the Alula agreement that was signed in January this year, I think the fact that Sheikh Taknoun, Taknoun bin Zayed, who is the national security advisor, who is MBZ's brother, the fact that he has been kind of leading, at least in public, the uh, the meetings in Turkey with President Erdogan, and then he was in Doha meeting with uh, Emir Tamim, and then obviously there was that photograph with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, Emir Tamim, and Sheikh Taknoun in Saudi Arabia. That shows that MBZ is, I think, at least in this issue, delegating to his brother, partly because Sheikh Taknoun has often handled or taken on the very sensitive diplomatic missions. But I think there's a recognition as well that with MBZ, that sense of hostility is still there. And it's probably easier for reconciliation to proceed if he at least delegates it to others. Um, It's been noticeable that there hasn't been a meeting, for example, yet between MBZ and Emir Tamim, whereas Emir Tamim has met with Mohammed bin Salman at least twice now probably more times, and obviously met with Sheikh Taknoun. And so I think there's a recognition that MBZ is probably too personally still wrapped up and involved and associated with so much of the animosity of the past decade that um, reconciliation is proceeding, but um, with other people leading that process. Yeah, that was quite a remarkable photograph, wasn't it? The, the three of them in their, in their uh, short-sleeved uh, summer shirts. Well, it was certainly a very different optic than the one that we'd seen over the four years of the Trump administration. And again, I think speaks volumes to the fact that you know, that era of adventurism is at least for the next few years firmly closed. And that uh, given that the Qataris had the shock in 2017 of having their US security relationship called into question by Donald Trump's initial support for the blockade, and then the Saudis and Emiratis having that assumption of unconditional U.S. support called into question in 2019 when 
Trump did nothing to kind of retaliate after the attacks on Saudi and Emirati targets. Now, that's been a reality check, and I think it's made all parties in the region much more conscious that perhaps their, you know, the backbone of that political security relationship that they thought was there uh, might not be there forever. And they've become more pragmatic in engaging with each other and with Iran as a result. Finally, Christian, is there a risk that, as happened with HBJ, that Qatar is again in a situation where it may be biting off more than it can handle? Well, I think the Qataris are better equipped now, partly because they have the greater depth in Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They have the special envoy positions. They have Luar Qatar as the assistant foreign minister. There's, a, I think, a greater degree of capacity within the ministries now to handle such uh, sensitive and potentially complicated issues. And we've also seen follow-through as well. I mean, we saw the negotiations with the Taliban take place over three years, from 2018 to 2021, and obviously generate an outcome from a US point of view, the 2020 agreement that Trump signed, which, um, which clearly has been difficult in terms of the withdrawal, but has been sustainable. And so we're seeing outcomes that we didn't see perhaps previously. So we are seeing follow through, we're seeing greater professionalization and capacity within the ministry. But yes, if the if for example the, the Taliban regime that we now have back in power is as brutal as its predecessor in the nineteen nineties, then any associational any association with it could become could become difficult. And, of course, the, some of the early signs have been quite um, worrying in the sense that uh, some of the factions that have kind of risen in power in Kabul seem to be more hardline, more linked, I think, to maybe networks supported by Pakistan, not necessarily the group that was in Doha. And the Qataris, I think, are hoping that the group that was in Doha, led by Mullah Baradar, who is now, I think, the um, assistant head of the regime, I think they're hoping that those figures can be a moderating influence that they would have picked up on the need for a kind of inclusive and more sustainable approach to governing. But that obviously the Taliban is a network of factions, like most regimes. It's got hardline, moderate, other factions who are jostling for power. And if those factions that come out on top are much more hardline, perhaps much more rooted in a political violence that is not obviously inclusive, then that's going to be difficult. And so that could be something that comes back to um, bite not just anyone associated with the agreement, obviously Donald Trump as well, and and by extension President Biden for implementing the agreement that was signed by the US with the Taliban. So how events go in Afghanistan, I think, would be something that will need to be closely watched. Christian, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a special rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest.
Essential reading from independent sources.